Episode number three with writer Casey Gerald. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with writer Casey Gerald. Born in Oak Cliff, Texas, Casey's life reads like a textbook definition of the American dream. Oh, you know, small town boy from troubled home makes good and lands in the Ivy Leagues. Yale, to be exact. Casey later goes off to Harvard Business School and co-founds the nonprofit NBAs Across America, for which he is listed as one of Fast Company's most creative people. All of this and more can be found in his memoir, There Will Be No Miracles Here, which was listed by both NPR and the New York Times as one of the best books of 2018. His TED Talk, The Gospel of Doubt, has over 2.1 million views. Oh, and did I mention he's a Rhodes semifinalist? Recorded via Zoom while under lockdown, we speak about Casey's quiet panic around the phrase, return to normal, the soulful art of escaping, the relationship between consciousness and matter, the gift of being black and queer, and why he decided to wake up from the American dream. Honestly, this episode covers so many topics and Casey shows us a side of himself he rarely ever does. It also takes on a more conversational tone, and a few F-bombs are dropped, so be warned. Casey, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, to start, actually, I want to I speak about um, this panic that you mentioned, that you felt when you heard that shelter in place was going to be lifted here in New York City. It was this sense of... I mean, it kind of actually goes to this phrase that I've heard over and over again that is really, um, that I've really been sitting with, which is like going back to normal. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the reality is that like normal really didn't work for anybody, hardly. <laughs> you know, like the normal that we had before this thing happened did not was not working for people, for anybody. So I think the, I think sort of the short panic was this sense of, oh, you know what it was? It's kind of like, say you know you're about to break up with somebody, mm -hmm. you haven't gotten the courage to do it yet. Mm. So you've just like been avoiding their phone calls. Or like you just like been avoiding the situation, and then they call you and they're like, "Hey, I'm outside," you know, uh -huh. <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it was, right? I think I I have in a very deep way um, ended my relationship with normal, mm. and I wasn't ready to have the conversation. That's, <laughs> but, but you, but you know, like, but you've also interrupted that conversation with normal a couple of times. Like you have, 
I don't want to say escaped, but you have definitely removed yourself multiple times for extended periods of time. And was that, do you find that that is the same? Like that it was about an avoidance or was it about a restitution? Mm. I think about that um, part of Lauren Hill's Unplugged that I started listening to again today. And she said, we used to think that it was about retreat, but you have to, but it actually is a confrontation, like you have to confront it. Um, so I won't say it's the same, only because I think in the past, you know, in 2016, I left New York. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't know you then. Um, I ended probably 90% of my friendships. I mean, it was like I moved to Austin where I knew two people. I sat by myself and wrote a book for two years. Um, and I actually, at a certain point, had those conversations of ending those relationships. And, and that was not necessarily avoidance or restitution. It was healing, right? So it's like my knee has been bothering me, right? And, um, and for like a year. And it started after I had been running far too much on a treadmill. And like, if every time I run on a treadmill, my knee hurts, and then I stop running on the treadmill, that's not avoiding the treadmill, that's letting my knee mm. heal, right? Mm -hmm. So I think some of it is um, sort of accepting that your body or your inner being is telling you that something isn't working and not doing it anymore. Mm. And other people might say, oh, well, you're avoiding me. Um, but I don't really feel it's that way. I feel like I'm really kind of like really jamming with myself, you know, or, 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 or that kind of thing. Um, and it's not so much restitution because I feel like restitution is like this notion of getting back something that you lost and I just don't think you ever lose anything, right? Mm. Um, but I think it is a sort of evolution that, you know, you keep, you keep evolving and certain things that belong don't belong anymore. And you just kind of create that space. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a rapper in Atlanta and he's been living with uh, a friend slash business partner or whatever for a couple years. And his whole notion had been like, I need a team, I need a team. But he knows that this like, this friendship, this roommate situation is not fucking working for him anymore. And so we were talking, he was like, you know, yeah, I know I need to like move out, but you know, damn, what about the team? And I was like, just because it's not this team doesn't mean you won't have a team. Mm. That getting rid of the wrong team creates space for whatever needs to come. So like, you know, I moved around a lot as a kid and I, I've always been really eager to, um, be in the space I'm supposed to be at the time, <laughs> you know, and leave the space, leave the space I've been in. I don't care about moving. And so when we move forward collectively, what are the things that you are going to leave behind? I'm most likely going to leave New York. Why? For just for some time. I, it's yeah. not a, and this is my fourth time living in New York. 
I just moved here last year, last summer. <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah, it's been a beautiful time, at least for some period of time. It's not, it's not totally aligned with the space I want to be in. You know, I've been having this image of like running my feet through grass, you know, mm. which I would never do in this city, you know. <laughs> I do many other things in the city that I can't do other other places, but it's like, you know, so I just try to, you know, I lived in LA for a year before this and like I moved out for clear intentions and whether they were good or bad intentions was, was another thing. But like, I was really grateful for that time and I was very clear when that time was up and I still love LA and, you know, I'll still go. So um, some people might say I have sort of commitment issues, I guess, I don't know, but uh, I'm leaving New York because I want a vibe that this city is not really providing at the moment, um, but it provides vibes that like, you know. What's the vibe you're going for now? Just a lot of peace, man. A lot of peace. I'm really, the grass is really like, the grass is really a thing for me for some reason. Where, where, where do you think you can find this? Maybe I'll go back to California for a little bit. Maybe I'll go to Texas. Um, I've been thinking a lot about my family. You know, my niece is 14. So it's totally possible that this is just like, I need to go somewhere for three months, you know, I, or two months or a week. I have no idea. But, um, you know, Jill Scotton and uh, Erica Badu are doing their verses this weekend. I was like, I've been thinking about Erica so much in this sense of like pack light, you know? Yeah. Pack light. I want to pack a lot lighter after this, honestly. I was listening to this, um, we've talked about Abraham Hicks and, um, and the first time I went to their workshop, they said this thing that like totally changed my life. They said, you need not choose one thing you do not want. You need not choose one thing you do not want. And I was like, I've never believed that. I've always sort of, for a long time at least, thought that, yeah, I might know I don't want a certain thing, but life is full of trade-offs and blah, 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 and yada, yada. So anyway, um, I wonder is, as you're thinking about sort of listening to your body as like the choice of where next or what next, is it is it a rational thing, you know? Mm. Is it or is it sort of this thing where, like, you just sit with that feeling that you want? You know what I mean? Like you say, I want to be free, and you sit and every day in your meditation, you just like meditate on what it feels to be free. It's a great fucking song. But you like just meditate on what it feels to be free, and then and this happens so often. I'm sure this happens all all the time for you. Like you get so clear on the feeling and the desire and then the thing just comes, you know? Yeah. Like somebody will call and be like, hey, come to fucking Bali or something. I've never been to Bali. I'm not encouraging that, but like, you know, like the thing just comes, right? When I left New York the first, uh, the last time, I just said, I gotta, I gotta get out, I gotta get, and just, I woke up one morning and I had never lived in Austin. I'm from Dallas. We don't even believe in Austin. Like, I, I didn't know anything about Austin. So, um, I was just like, what about Austin? And just total random fucking idea. And I texted a friend of mine who lived there 
and was like, hey, do you think I could rent a house in Austin for X amount of money? And she literally texted back with the house that she and her husband had just moved out of that was open. I didn't go down to visit. I like rented the house and moved a couple of weeks later. So like, I don't know. I just, I just really do think not to get all like alchemist on you, but I, I just really think that like the whole thing is just waiting for us to like cooperate, you know, mm. cooperate. One, one question that, you know, I, I, I wanted to ask was, you know, just in the choices you've made, the life you've lived, um, the life that you thought you had to live, right, took you to some amazing places, some amazing experiences, you know, conversations in a buffet line with a former president of the United States. What did you think you would see? And what did you actually see? Mm. I have this line in my book um, that says, from my starting place in the valley of the least of these, I reached the mountaintop, not that I intended to, just was afraid and open-minded. Uh, anyway, I'm back and I've come with urgent news we must find another mountain, if not another world, to call our own. In some ways, it really helped that I didn't have any expectations when, for example, I left you know, Oak Cliff, Texas and got to Yale at 18. Um, I went, um, I have this other line that says, every journey is really two journeys, a going to and a going away. And, um, at the time that I left home and went to college, all I was doing is get going away. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know much about Yale um, or anything about it. I, you know, um, had grown up this little poor, you know, queer black damn near orphan. You know, my dad, who had been a big time college football player, but by the time I was growing up was addicted to heroin and was out of my life by the time I was 10 or 11. And my mother suffered from mental illness and uh, disappeared when I was 13. Um, so, you know, my friends and I, many of whom who had similar lives, we didn't do a lot of like um, life goals. You know, it was like, <laughs> what are we eating today? You know, that kind of thing. It was very, uh, it was a very practical kind of life and anything that wasn't useful today was kind of irrelevant, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I live with my, live with different people, my cousin, my two grandmothers, one was a domestic and at a certain point my sister came back and, and, uh, and adopted me when we were, I was 15, she was 19. So I got to Yale and I was just like, I don't, I don't know, you know? And it really helped that I didn't, I knew that I didn't know anything and I was totally fine um, admitting that. Um, and so I got really good really quickly trying to at finding people who did know stuff and getting them to sort of seducing them to tell me everything that they knew, you know? So I would just like watch it. I would just watch everybody. And so I took in what basically everybody else took in that the real thing was to be rich and rich for me was like 
you know, I remember I went back to college and I asked an upperclassman on the football team, I played football in college. I was like, what should I do with my life, man? And he was like, listen, just be an investment banker. And I was like, what is an investment banker? And he was like, don't worry about it. I'm 19 years old. Just know that investment bankers make $60,000 a year starting selling. I had never heard of anybody making $60,000 a year. So I was like, I don't give a shit what they do. I'm happy to be an investment banker. So like, you know, this is Yale. I play football. So like somebody had to connect. It was a total like, uh, it was a total scam, man. You know, the whole exercise was a whole scam. You know somebody, you know somebody. You know, I tell people this all the time. I write in the book. You know, I know the American dream is real. You know, not that yeah. bullshit they sell you. You know, you if you play by the rules and work hard, you can do anything, be anybody in this country. I'm talking about the real American dream, the way the country actually works. If you know the right people, they can help you do anything or be anybody. Rules of hard work be damned. So in a lot of ways, honestly, Dario, um, I spent a lot of my younger years a, a, a bit like a whore, you know. Um, my main gift was figuring out, um, finding people who had what I needed figuring out what they wanted and giving it to them immediately. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, so where does that get you? It gets you really far, I suppose, but you leave a lot of yourself behind and you never really think about, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, this notion of you do, you need not choose one thing you do not want, right? My whole, so much of the past four years for me have been, um, unlearning a whole lifetime mm -hmm. you know, after my parents left of um, basically, you know, prostitute myself out for shelter or food or, or whatever. So I saw um, a lot of stuff that I won't go into details about, whether it was, you know, being at Lehman Brothers in 2008 in the financial crisis, being at George Bush's dinner table, all this stuff, um, spending three years driving across the country with the work that I did before I became a writer. But I think more deeply, I saw that the way we're taught to live has really got to change. Mm -hmm. And this notion, I mean, it goes back to the same thing, you know, say my nigga Paul used to say, you know, what would it, profit of man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. And whether it was George Bush or Barack Obama or those bankers at Lehman Brothers or um, the dean of Harvard Business School or the president of Yale, I saw a lot of people with a lot of stuff and, um, and a big old hole in their soul. And so, so much of what I've been trying to do is go back and put four or five year old Casey back in the driver's seat, he had a lot of, he had a lot of insight and a mm. lot of intuition and he didn't take shit from anybody. And, um, and so in a lot of ways it's sort of, I've been on this kind of recovery mission to go recover him and love him. And I guess, you know, forgive who he became and then kind of cope co-parent with my younger self um, in a way that is really 
in some ways not necessarily at odds with the world um, and the norms of the world, but is at least aware of how limited those norms are. Mm. If that makes sense. No, no, that totally makes sense. And so what is that process like that reclaiming like what are what are those tools i mean we spoke a little bit earlier about meditation but you know that process of healing of of forgiving of reconstituting four-year-old casey mm. i would say there's a couple things um three things one is discovery. Mm -hmm. um, I realized early on, Tony Morrissey used to tell our students, don't write what you know because you don't know nothing. And a lot of people would see that as a warning against personal narrative. I mean, my first book and a lot of the writing work that I've done has been in personal narrative. But I think it's a great invitation, man. Um, I realized as I was writing my book, my mother, I had thought for years that my mother disappeared when I was 12, for example. Um, and as I was writing, I was procrastinating one day and found these old sort of scrapbooks with her signature from when I was 13. And I was like, holy shit, I got to give this money back because I don't even remember my own life, right? Um, but it was really deep and I really had to mourn the fact that this whole year of my life, I didn't remember mm -hmm. for various reasons, right? Um, so a lot of the first stage of the work is sitting. Um, I did this thing with a Reiki healer called the Memory Palace. And she said, and this is kind of the second thing actually, but she, the process was imagine a younger version of you. Mm -hmm. And you can see him. And what you need is you need a place for y'all to sit and you need a screen. And then once you find that and y'all agree, just envision it. And then things will start to come up on the screen that you need to see. So we're going and I'm sitting there. She's like, okay, minutes pass. She's like, okay, what do you see? And I'm like, I see him, but he's just sitting on a rock, staring into a puddle of water. And when you say screen, do you mean like, like a television screen? Exactly. Okay. So she says, okay, that's fine. A rock sounds like a seat and a puddle of water that you can see into sounds like a screen. So like, sit down, let's see what happens. And so we, a few more minutes pass and little Casey keeps staring in the pool of water. Nothing comes up. He doesn't say nothing. He doesn't turn to me. And I'd start telling my Reiki all of this. And she's like, well, maybe he's just telling you, you need to sit there with him, you know? Hmm. And it was really deep for me because it really went, it took me way back, you know, by, by the time this is done, I'm like weeping or whatever. Yeah. It took me way back to like that seven year old kid who just wanted somebody to sit with him, you know, and not have to perform and not have to say anything, not have to be interesting, not have to be worth your time. So, a lot of the first stage of the work is sitting still enough to discover what has actually happened. We really don't know what's happened to us mm. in, a, in a real way. 
That's one. Two um, is um, getting help, right? I tell people all the time, you know, you had probably 10 math teachers over the course of your life, and you don't know any fucking math <laughs> today, despite those 10 teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And you didn't question, oh man, I, maybe I should teach myself math. Um, why should we not think the same way about our psychological and emotional and spiritual healing? So got a therapist, a numerologist, a tarot reader, a Reiki healer, you know? Um, I try to pray, I try to meditate, I try to surround myself with other people like you who are tuned to this kind of work. Um, you know, um, so the support has to be there. And then the third thing is creating. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this great line on D'Angelo's liner uh, notes for Voodoo that Saul Williams wrote. And he says, I believe in art in the sense of the phrase, thou art God, art being the thing that connects the thou individual to the God higher or inner self. And um, I find myself so grateful for being able to work as a writer for this writing my book, writing essays and working on a screenplay now, which is an adaptation of, of my book. And, and each time, I'm going back trying to trying to use this recovery process, not just to regurgitate the facts, but to sort of reimagine other possibilities, you know. That to me is very healing. Uh, and to be able to take this thing that you create and put it out in the world, um, being better yourself, but then also somebody sees it and they know that they're not alone, or they see some other thing that they might not have seen, you know. I love this idea of you going back and reimagining your past, like reimagining your life. It's something um, that came up, ooh, maybe a couple of months ago for me, but this, this notion that we think that the past is fixed, but the past is actually malleable, right? Like who you are in this moment, right? If we're just gonna say the moment, divorcing of time, who you are in this moment has the ability to actually change the past because you are now looking at the past with a different kind of awareness. And, mm -hmm. and in that way, time actually completely disappears because mm -hmm. as you do that work, to rewrite or reimagine your past, it actually changes who you are now, which then changes your future. So it's really this very malleable, it's like, like a photon, right? When it's observed, right, it's a wave, but when it's not observed, it's a particle. So we think that it's this fixed thing, but by the actual shifting of our attention to the thing, it actually changes in that moment. That's, that's, um, that's the double slit experiment uh, for people who are, you can Google double slit experiment. I will Google, it. I will Google that. And thereby concluding that like our, our DNA, like, like our, our consciousness actually shifts and changes matter. Like our actual presence 
the things around us respond to our actual consciousness and our presence. Wow. wow. That's nuts, man. It's nuts because one, I trust you, I believe that this <laughs> is true. Like if you believe that's true, how should you spend your time? You know what I mean? It's like you come in this physical body from this sort of infinite energy and at some point you'll leave this and go back out into the pool and get ready for the next exercise or whatever. It's like, it can't be that you just came here knowing that your DNA, your presence, your consciousness changes matter. And your whole purpose of that was coming to watch CNN, you know, <laughs> you know, and let it destroy your whole, you know, because it's consciousness and it's matter and it's DNA is shifting, you know, man. Yeah. And, and, you know, when we spoke earlier about, you know this this virus right and and acknowledging the the pain and suffering that individuals and families are going through and the lives lost um and you know for me pulling back just a little bit um knowing that or believing that somewhere somehow we invited this moment we invite we we co-created collectively this moment and you know for me it's interesting to hear not only you but you know you know my boyfriend's mother who's like you know i could have used the check but i also haven't had a saturday off in two years mm. and that feels nice right and so it's interesting the way, and, and, and I spoke to you earlier about how the universe is just so efficient, right? Mm -hmm. That it can, it, it affects the macro and the micro. This moment is not just a moment about us, about America, about humanity, about culture. It's also about you. Mm -hmm. It's also about you and it's a relationship, right? And like many relationships, it serves as a mirror a mirror for us to see where our weak points are, where our strengths are, and how do we want to adjust, right? It is a, it's a, it's an adjustment period. Yes. From a place of, of deep love for yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what also has been so interesting about this time. That whether you bathe, whether you wash your uh, face, whether you put on your night moisturizer, whether you brush your teeth, whether you, what you cook, when you eat, how much you drink, whether you do those workouts, whatever. It's all been, um, you know, there's been very little, at least in my life. Um, well, I got to do this because I got to go meet mm -hmm. experts. I got to be at work or I got to do whatever, you know. Um, this much time with yourself, I hope, um, I hope we love ourselves a little more, you know, not from the standpoint of so that when we come out closer to what we want or better or more evolved or whatever, it's not from the standpoint of, you know, the, the, the LLC, <laughs> the LLC concepts, you know, it's like take your Trump stimulus and start a small business. You know, it's not, not about the productivity, but more about, you know, Wow, one, I just survived mm -hmm. the worst plague in a century. Okay. And I didn't die 
hopefully I didn't, you know, have extreme total financial ruin. You know what I mean? That's not a case to love yourself a little more and hopefully like yourself or at least see why you don't like yourself, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, really. Absolutely. Um, as you have evolved, Casey, and you, you mentioned getting rid of like 90% of your friends, knowing that networks are so important, right? Our relationships, how has your relationships shifted in the course of your development? I say a good thing and a bad thing, or I say a thing I appreciate and a thing I like to work on. Um, and actually I was listening to this tarot uh, person that I listen to often and her reading today was one of these pick a card readings. Mm -hmm. and, it, and the question for the reading was, um, why am I going through this? And the deck that I picked, which really resonated with me was, um, that one of the things this moment is trying to teach me is to trust. First of all, trust my self, mm -hmm. trust my inner self, which I, you know, which is a long journey for me. And also trust, um, enough to ask for help or ask for support or trust other people. Um, so I find um, that as I've evolved, I've on the one hand realized um, a deep need of healing so that I can trust new people. Mm -hmm. It's a long time for, um, it takes a long time for me to trust other people. Mm. And I think when I'm not fully plugged in on the right wave, I'm often looking for a reason not to trust people. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm waiting up, for example, I'm waiting on um, a contract to come through uh, for a writing project. And um, when I'm not, as Abraham would say, in the vortex, I have this constant sort of chatter of, um, they're gonna, um, they're not gonna give me my money, you know? Uh, for example, I had a, I, I went to a therapist in Los Angeles and the second time I went to her, I got there a few minutes before our time. It was like eight o'clock at night. I got there at maybe 7.55, eight o'clock rolls around. She didn't come to the door. So I'm like, okay, what's going on? 8.02 comes, 8.03 comes, 8.04 comes. Um, and I'm, so now I'm like going through this story of the worst thing is happening. She stole my money. She's a scammer or whatever. Um, and it was funny, like 8.07, she comes out and she's like, why do you look like that? And I was like, I knew you weren't coming. Right? And so like um, <laughs> one of the big parts of healing, again, it sort of goes back to this sort of recovery deal. It's like this, you know, knowing this sort of muscle that I built of uh, being really, um, really sort of traumatized by having expectations of other people, mm. my parents, right? And not having those basic needs met. And so I think um, evolving 
enough to, um, it almost goes back to what I was saying to my rapper friend, right? Even if this is not the team, that doesn't mean that you don't need a team. Just because, just because these are not the people that belong in your life does not mean that you don't need people in your life. And I think mm. for, a, mm. for a long time, my, maybe this is like some Capricorn in me too, I don't know. But like for a long time, my desire was to try to design this a life that was as undependent on other people as possible. Um, and, you know, you think about it, what did they say, you know, he, he came that you may have life and life more abundantly, right? That's not an abundant life, a life that's not in community. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the piece that is a really exciting sort of project to improve. Um, I think on the other hand, as I've evolved, um, I really, and this is the plus side of sort of, um, you know, my childhood, which is, you know, every time somebody I thought I needed disappeared, somebody else appeared that was there for me. And I think that's sort of, I don't really like the notion. You know, when I got to college, there was this man that came and he had written this book called Never Alone. And he said, your network is your network. So every time you have a meal, eat it with somebody. And it was this very transactional kind of thing. Um, you know, I talk to the same three or four people I've talked to for the last 15 years, you know, like I'm not greedy for mm. new social interaction, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm open to it. And, but yeah, I'm really good with a small group of people, the same kind of people who may not necessarily, um, have any network contribution, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but who, who nourish me a lot. Um, and who I trust. So I think a lot about years ago, I uh, read this speech that Samantha Powers uh, gave in like 2006. And she started her career, she was former UN ambassador, and she started her career as a war correspondent with like a crew of people uh, that were all young war correspondents, two of whom went on and got married. And she asked the wife at some point how she knew that the husband was the guy. And the wife says, when we were all covering wars, I dated a lot of guys and I started to subject them all to the refugee test. And Samantha's like, what's that? And she says, I asked myself with every guy I dated, could I be a refugee with this person? Mm. If I lost my job, if I lost everything, we were just like out with nothing, like could, would he still like with that, would he pass that test? And I find myself, I find that to be a very helpful rubric, not just for relationships, but for friendships as well. Um, if we're like colleagues, that's one thing, but if we're going to be friends, um, I can't really um, be in deep, intimate community with you if it's dependent on me being a successful person or, you know, uh, relevant or anything else, you know? No, that's actually a really great segue because I also wanted to ask you, like, being black in America is one thing. Being gay in America is another thing. Being black and gay in America is a whole other thing. Um, how, how do you navigate relationships, like actually personal relationships, as you 
you know, evolve through the course of your own like career trajectory? Like, how do you navigate that? How do you reconcile interpersonal conflicts and the energy that, uh, uh, you know, an intimate relationship uh, takes? Not always very well, honestly. The most important, uh, when I was 25 or something, I fell in love with this boy and he was older than I was, but it was like very, un, it was like very codependent. It was like very unhealthy. Anyway, instead of him like giving me his heart, he gave me a book, um, <laughs> A Return to Love by Marianne Williams. And it totally changed my life. And she talked in there about the different, uh, a holy relationship and an unholy relationship. Mm. And this notion that in an unholy relationship, broken people, show up in space with each other to rob from the other. Um, and all of those neuroses are sort of, you know, in the driver's seat and our egos are in the driver's seat. Whereas in a holy relationship, it's not that we're perfect, but that we are in a space where my investment is your freedom also. After that, I read uh, Bell Hooks, All About Love. And she says, love, uh, this was something she had quoted, love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. So one of the most important things that happened to me in the past few years as I was writing this book, a lot of the book is informed by my first love who I met when I was 16. We were together when I was 19. I started this book when I was 27. I hadn't seen him. I started the book when I was 28, 29. I hadn't seen him in five years. And then he just kind of shows up out of the blue, and I hadn't planned to write about him, right? Um, and, and it was so wild, Dario, because um, we were together in, in Austin for three days, and I realized that this person had taken up so much space in my life and I hadn't actually really seen them. Mm. And, um, and a lot of the things that I had blamed him for, like, were totally like my fault, you know what I mean? Um, like what? Some of it was just like miscommunication, right? I remember I, when we broke up, it was in part because I was just like, I felt sort of dangerously at his mercy in a way. You know, I just, it was just like, this is just too much, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was in school in Connecticut and he was in Texas. And so I was just like, I can't do this. And my notion was like, I need to, like, if we're going to be together in the future, we need to not be together right now. And um, I was also very like paranoid. I was like very, I was a real like piece of shit. I'd be like, you know, real, I was very intense. Um, and I was like, I think it's best that we not talk at all. And we went literally overnight from talking every day for multiple years to not talking at all. And it was just like, this is what needs to happen. And it was funny because he didn't call me. And I was like, See, I knew he wasn't shit, like, you know, his bullet, whatever, whatever. So anyway, fast forward almost 10 years, you know, seven, eight, nine years later, whatever, I write about this um, almost as like an investigation as to like what went wrong in this relationship. So many things. Um, shit around sex, right? You know, not trusting that he had gotten tested and like having this big paranoia thing, right? All this stuff. So he reads the thing, he reads the pages that I had written the chapter before I like put it in the book. And he's like, 
I didn't call you because you told me not to call you. And I was like, oh, well, I just thought you didn't care. And he was like, well, actually, when we got off the phone, I went, you know, cried for, you know, whatever hours in the park. And then I haven't cried since then, you know. And it was like years past. So it was, it was like this, um, and that kind of goes to what we are talking about earlier in terms of the recovery and the healing, that you're not just healing from things that have done to you, but I feel like it's also healing in, um, both in terms of taking accountability and in terms of forgiving yourself for the things that you've done to other people. Fast forward, we have this weird reunion thing which turns into the next two years of like, you know, trying to see if there's like some way to fix this thing or like recover or whatever. I moved out to LA and all this stuff, which is also kind of crazy. But going back to this notion of what love really looks like, you know, I spent that year out in LA and it was really hard, you know, um, on a lot of fronts. One, because I had never really taken a risk or extended myself for anybody, mm, honestly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I felt if I was going to grow into a person that I was proud of, I'd try to do that. And I thought that I was going back to Los Angeles to like get him back. It turns out I was going to LA to let, to finally like fully let him go. And so it was like this really big deal of, you know, by the time I left LA, I was 32. I met him when I was 16. That was like half of my life, <laughs> you know, um, that was, going back over the same shit with the same boy, you know, trying to imagine a different way to do it, a way that's more loving, a way that's more whole, a way that's more considerate, a way that's healthier, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, when it ended, the way it, it ended, I talked to a friend of mine who I've known since I was 17, and he was like, what from high school still belongs in your life? <laughs> And I was like, well, fuck you, first of all. But but he was right, you know? It's like, don't let nostalgia blind you to, like, the fact that, like, you can't, you know, you can go back to Kansas, but it's a different Kansas than you, than you left. Mm -hmm. And is that something that you, like, want and or seek after this, this partnership? Or are you like, I'm, well, actually, I'm not, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Oh, yeah, man. I think it'd be great. I think it's great, you know, and I think, you know, I mean, my notion was that it was going to be, you know, that was, that was the partnership. I really, I, you know, I, uh, what I, pre what I really loved about, and this might not be healthy, but, you know, when I started talking to boys, it was like, I was early. I didn't have any adult supervision. So I like started talking to boys on the internet at like 14. Uh -huh. Um, I, and this is definitely, it's not healthy, but like I lost my virginity when I was 16. And my first boyfriend was 24 when I was 16, which is like technically statutory rape, but like we'll leave that. But it was also Texas, so it could have actually flown. Well, they flew because nobody knew. <laughs> <laughs> it was like whatever. Um, but one of the things in a way that I really appreciated about uh, and I've never, you know, it's like, I've been just so grateful for being gay because one of the, I always felt that like it was an escape from the real world, mm -hmm. you know, and like, 
you know, I appreciate it that like the boys that I talked to, you know, didn't care that much that I was at Yale. They weren't like, oh, well, are you going to be rich? You know, it's like, I mean, they were all just like country, you know, yeah, I dated a lot of boys from small towns, you know, it's like whatever. So I have found it interesting over time, especially after being out and like being in the world and all this kind of stuff. I have no interest in being in like a power couple. Mm. That to me, like the notion of being in like a gay power couple is like diametrically opposed to why I started dating boys in the first place. <laughs> it was like, it's just, which again, may not be healthy, yeah, but it just kind of defeats the purpose. But, you know, if we're just gonna like buy a table at the Robin Hood Gala, I mean, I guess I could have dated a girl for that. Yeah, and, and you know, so many things are what you make of them, right? Like these, these things don't define you. you. You can actually shift and change how they work for you um and and i think going back to you know this this virus and the kind of what's happening i'm i'm you know we're like in a holding pattern i'm really interested to see where are we when this shit opens up because this we have all collectively had to wrestle with ourselves and our environments and our relationships without distraction for two whole months but do you think people have really wrestled? I really don't believe, to be honest, I really don't believe much is gonna change in the broader society. I really don't believe that. And I don't say that from a cynical standpoint. Um, I, I just really, I think people, even if their marriages have been exposed to be miserable, even if they've seen they hate their children or their jobs or, even if they know, I mean, we live in New York, when the epicenter of this fucking thing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we know unless, unless every epidemiologist on the planet is an idiot, we know that if you don't social distance, the virus will recur. And everybody's in the street, you know? So I just don't, I don't, I think we'll, you know, I, I, I'm not sold that um, necessarily because we haven't, been able to do the things we used to do that that necessarily means we've grappled with that we've grappled with the things that we needed to grapple with it's like you know it's like friend it's like friends of people i knew who went to jail you know for a long time and like for every uh for every malcolm x jail story <laughs> like 12,000 fucking non-Malcolm X jail stories. Like a lot of people go to, a lot of people go to jail. I have one in mind in particular, who I won't name. Um, a lot of people go to jail and come out the same motherfuckers that went in. Yeah. You know? I support prison abolition, by the way. It's not a pro-jail statement. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, for me, like, I'm not necessarily even like, oh, the world is going to change. I'm grateful for the opportunity for those who needed a collapse in order to shift mm. have been given that opportunity. Mm. You know, it's like everything, everything you put in your mouth, your body doesn't need, right? Mm. The cells that need it are going to absorb it and what is not used is discarded. So right. everything isn't for everybody. But for those who need it, it's there. And that's really kind of where I'm, you know, I'm thinking. 
you know, we have, I feel like we have this myth of, you know, change and shifting and evolution, and we really don't change much. Right. And we right. really don't change quickly. Right. Um, but there are instances that occur where patterns are disrupted and there is no choice but for evolution to take place, mm -hmm. right? And only, and those who adjust to the new environment are those that will thrive, you know, in that environment. Um, and, and, that's a, and that's a personal thing. The perpetual struggle is being who I am in a world that's seemingly running a different script. That's right. And how do I navigate? Rejoice. <laughs> a couple, seriously, a couple years ago, my agent called me, she's 80s, and it was Lent. And I said, Lynn, what do you, I was living in Texas. She says, darling, I'm reading the Gospel of Luke for Lent. You should give it a try. So I said, sure, why not? So I read it and there was this great, line in there where Jesus of Nazareth tells his disciples, rejoice when men revile you, they all manner of evil against you. Rejoice for then you know that you are bringing about the kingdom. When I look back on the, the, the times where I am least proud of myself, Mm -hmm. for my behavior or whatever. It's those times where I'm going in the direction of the stream of the society. Almost 100% of the moments, the instances, the errors, the times where I say, wow, now that's, that's a Casey I believe in. That's, 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 that's a dude I want, I, I'd like to know, I'd like to be again. It's those moments where, you know, rejoice, when men revile you and say all manner of evil against you, for then you know, right? I think, I think that's how do you keep your sense of dis-ease about a diseased world? Okay, <laughs> this world is sick, man. It's sick. It truly is. <laughs> it truly is, and you know it. Yeah. So, so this notion of rejoicing, of being so grateful. And this is why fellowship is so important. Misfit fellowship is so important. <laughs> if it's just you and your studio and, uh, or me and my apartment, I may think, man, what the hell is wrong with you? Better get it together, man, because you, something is wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then when two or three of us get together and say, oh, wait a minute, something's wrong with the fucking world. And that's the truth. So how do you navigate? going against the deal, rejoice. Say, wow, thank, thank you, whatever it is you believe in. Isn't it, isn't it grand? Isn't it delicious? Isn't it thrilling that uh, I don't work in this world? Isn't that great? You know. And what's, it, what's interesting about that is doubling down on yourself, you know? Um, but what, what ends up happening is that it's like it's a bat signal mm -hmm. it ends up being a bat signal and those who are aligned come calling that's exactly right do you know what i mean and they they reveal themselves almost like 
you know, like they open up the inside of their coat, mm-hmm. you know, that only you can see and inside are like galaxies and worlds that you're very familiar with. And then they keep on walking, right? It's like, it's that, that's right. it's that moment. And that's where it's so great. That's where you say to be black, to be queer is the greatest gift you could ever get. When I first started my book, uh, I sent a few early chapters to a, a very established writer that I knew. And he called and he says, say, man, what is this? You've been hired to write an autobiography. It's a straightforward exercise. It's got a beginning, middle, and end. It's grounded in the facts of your life. And oh, by the way, there's a great tradition of autobiography in this country led by people on the margins of society who write to assert that they exist. You should go and read those books and learn from them because you're going in the wrong direction. And I was so grateful for his intervention because it clarified to me that even if I was not gonna have the commercial success that he envisioned for this book, that I was not gonna write that kind of book. And I was able to think about Kendrick Lamar on section 80 saying, I'm not on the outside looking in, I'm not on the inside looking out, I'm in the dead fucking center looking around. I was able to think about um, Louis Armstrong taking this old jazz standard of stardust and blowing the bitch wide open. And once you hear Louis Armstrong do stardust, who wants to hear the old Cole Porter or whatever version, it's irrelevant. And maybe it takes 100 years for people to see it's irrelevant, but we know it's irrelevant. It was so helpful to be able to watch a clip of Lil Richard, uh, 1970-something, sitting on a piano in a periwinkle blue uh, uh, onesie with rhinestones and shit. And he's talking about Jimi Hendrix. And he says, that's what you want. You want to give it all or none. You got to give it all or none. And he says, everybody's a star. The only difference is some people haven't been placed into the dipper and poured back out on the world. You got to be placed into the dipper and poured back out on the world. So, so much of um, that bat signal is not just a contemporaneous bat signal. There is a bat signal, you know, throughout time. It's like sending it out. That's why I love, I mean, you're, so much of you are one of the most creative, brilliant, visionary people I know. And oh. so much time doing archival work, not just so you can reference the fucking book to somebody, but I imagine, and I'd love to hear your version of it, but so much of what I get and what I imagine you get from going through archives is finding food you know, finding nourishment, finding, you know, um, when I was working on The Black Art of Escape, the last essay I wrote, I watched Chris Marker's films. And I knew I wanted to, I, I knew I didn't want to write a sort of linear essay. And I watched these films that he's telling in just snatches. It's not a, you know, he told uh, uh, one of his films, there are no moving images. It's voiceover and literally like a slideshow of pictures, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was like finding in the archives um, the comfort to know that you're not alone in a historical record of your personal expression, you know? I was down in Louisiana a couple years ago uh, and I was talking to this little Creole man and he said, New York is the smart kid and the gay kid from every shit town in America that woke up one day and said, fuck it, I'm out of here. 
And it is yeah. true. Like New York was the first place that I bet you and so many people we know that I came to and didn't feel strange and didn't feel out of place and didn't feel like something was wrong with me. It was the first place I came to when I was 21 years old and felt like I could just breathe, you know? And I really don't have a lot of patience for people who just complain about it all the time because you've seen a thousand movies. You know it's fucking dirty. You know it's expensive. You know it's cruel. Like you could have stayed in Minnesota if that's if you didn't want it. Like you knew what you were getting into. So, but you gotta leave New York in part because you got to build the muscle to know that you can always leave. Mm. There is this kind of feeling at a certain point, especially if you work in the creative industries, that if you're not here, what are you really doing with your life? You know? mm. If you're not in New York, are you really a writer? If you're not in New York, do you really work in fashion? If you don't work in New York, are you really a playwright? If you, you know, it, and to a certain degree, you got to, uh, you got to just build the muscle of blowing shit up every now and then in your own life. Because otherwise you start to feel, at least I start to feel, oh shit, uh, um, if I go and sit in uh, Possum Kingdom, Texas for six months, uh, my career is over. Hmm. It's very important for me to go and sit in Possum Kingdom, Texas for six months. One, because I think really awesome shit is going to happen but also so that I have that in my memory bank when that period is over, that one, I realized I really haven't missed anything. And two, <laughs> and two, I realized that like, I can, you can always leave. You can always, you can always leave. You don't ever, um, your gift is not geolocated. Mm. You see, uh, your gift is a very portable thing. And <laughs> wherever you go, what Jesus say, wherever you go, there I will be also. You, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that's that that that's part of the reason. So I just thought about that as you were talking about um, the sort of the lie of it. One of the lies we're told is that you got to be in X place and be around Y people, and you got to be on the scene. You got to be in the know. You got to be. You got to do your work. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's. That's amazing. Um, so I'm, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, I do want to ask one, let's just say one final question for, for this round. Um, what, what is the world you are creating? I'm imagining a world where everybody's free. And I don't mean uh, I don't mean political freedom. Yeah, you know, I write about in the Black Art of Escape that enslaved woman, Miss Fanny Moore's mother, down in North Carolina, and uh, she gets happy one day in the fields, and uh, and uh, thanks to you, I tell the story with uh, Pierre Marshall. Um, she gets happy one day in the fields and old Master Jim comes running. He says, what's all this going on in the fields? You think I sent you out of here to hoot and yell? No siree, I sent you out here to work. You better work for I put this cowhide across your black back. And Miss Fanny Moore's mother, she uh, turns to Master Jim and she says, the Lord has shown me the way. I ain't gonna grieve no more. No matter how you all treat me and my children, the Lord has shown me the way and someday we ain't never gonna be slaves no more. 
Mass Jim takes that bullwhip, starts whipping Miss Fannie Moore's mother. And she doesn't say anything. She just goes back out into the field shouting, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. One of the reasons I say we've got to rejoice that we're black, we've got to rejoice that we're queer, we've got to rejoice that we are at odds with an unfree, diseased world is because then when we rejoice, when we say thank you, when we look down the line, we see that we've got to learn something from Miss Fannie Moore's mother, that there's a freedom that we have on the inside that the world didn't give us and the world cannot take away. So whether I'm you know, writing a screenplay for a movie, whether I'm writing a book, whether I'm writing an essay, whether I'm having a conversation with my friend, whether I'm walking down the street, my question at all times is, am I reclaiming and preserving and protecting and sharing more of that freedom every step of the way. And I think if that's the test, if you walk out of the theater and you're more free than you went in, I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty great, which doesn't necessarily mean that you've seen a happy-go-lucky story, right? Um, but if it brings you closer to yourself, and that's what good love, that's what a good friend will do, that's what a good lover will do, that's what a good meal will do, that's what some good meditation will do, a good therapist will do, a good walk in the park will do, maybe a good dog. I don't like animals in that way. But, you know, um, that's what it does. It brings you good art will do it, good, a good song, some good silence, a good heater if it's cold outside. You know, it'll bring you closer to yourself in a free, unencumbered way. Um, and you uh, can sit in a, um, in a drastically unfree world. I mean, today, another black man was just gunned down in the streets, you know, running down the street. I just saw. We can accept all of that stuff. Um, but until they kill us all, we got to find a way to live, you see. And I think there's a really, um, a thrilling opportunity for all of us to do that more freely and bring our younger selves along in that. So that's the that's the world I think I'm envisioning. I love that. And I'm gonna I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to think about that quote now because because there's something in there about how this this moment, this pandemic has somehow for a while Silence, Master Jim. You know, that's right. The 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 hand that's holding that whip. Something has caught it, right? Caught that arm, and so we're in this very kind of liminal mm. moment before that whip comes back mm. down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. I think you're right. I think you're very right. Um, well. I want to take a moment to one, just thank you for hopping on. I want to just acknowledge you for really all the work that you continue to do on yourself and that you are willing enough and courageous enough to share it. In that book, and in your story, you have revealed to us ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. our light and our darkness, 
for continually showing up and confronting and rejoicing in the naysayers, rejoicing mm-hmm. in the attacks, because that makes you anti-fragile. Mm-hmm. The more you're hit, the stronger you become. And so for you to do and exercise that process in a very public way is, is an act of sacrifice and an act of courage. And so mm-hmm. I want to thank you and acknowledge you for that. So much, man. That means so much. One of the main reasons I'm so grateful for having been sent back to New York for this uh, year um, is, uh, is meeting you and, and, and our friendship. And, and I'm so grateful for it. You taught me a lot and gave me a lot of strength. Oh, so before, before we wrap, where can people connect with you? Um, where can they pick up? There will be no miracles here. Uh, you can connect with me on Instagram, Twitter, at Casey Gerald. Um, my website is CaseyGerald.com. All the links to my book, There Will Be No Miracles Here, is there, including purchase links, um, which is on Amazon, and uh, link to my essay, The Black Art of Escape, which is free. Um, as long as you have not read past your free New York Magazine uh, uh, articles for the month, then you're good to go. Amazing, brother. Thank you, thank you, thank you again. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, man. Go out there, be great. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. Uh, I hope this wide-ranging conversation with Casey was entertaining and informative. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends. Shout us out over Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast. And let us know what part of the conversation really stuck out to you. Be sure to subscribe wherever you receive your podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes. And if you have a few shekels to spare, be sure to click the support link on the show notes. We have so much more great empowering content on the way. And please remember to be gracious with yourself. We're all on the path to becoming. And never forget, black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.